Thank you so much. Thanks for that introduction, George. It is great to be here. I actually have, um, even though I am a West Coaster, I have a bunch of Ontario connections. First of all, in, uh, for half of grade two and all of grade three, I lived in Oakville, Ontario. And actually, as a, I was falling asleep last night, I was thinking about one of my best friends in Oakville was this boy, a fellow 10-year-old named Derek. And I was remembering last night, I haven't thought about this for years, Derek somehow had these two child-sized police costumes and this book of fake parking tickets. And we used to run about the streets of Yokeville, uh, leaving these fake parking tickets on people's cars and then just relishing the thought of how horrified they would be when they would found them. And good, good Oakville memories, <laughs> good times. My second Ontario connection is I, I met and fell in love with a guy named Mark Ahrens, and he is from London, Ontario. And uh, I did make him stay out west, but um, he is one of seven kids, and most of them live in Richmond Hill and uh, Markham, kids being his siblings, not that he had seven kids that we left in Ontario, nothing like that. Uh, he has siblings that, that live out here, so we love to get out this way and get the cousins together. And my third connection to Ontario is, uh, uh, as um, George mentioned, we have a son who is almost 16, and uh, our son Ben is obsessed with basketball. Vancouver does not have an, M uh, an NBA team, which is a whole sad story that we've been in therapy for for a while. But anyways, because of that, uh, the Raptors are our team, and so it's kind of all Raptors all the time. Yep, at the Aaron's house. And it's been going pretty well lately, so thanks, thanks for that. Um, so it's great to be here, and I was hoping that we could actually um, start by singing a prayer together. So I've told you about my Ontario connections. I am uh, glad to be there here for those reasons, but I'm especially glad to be at, at Tyndall. I've heard uh, so many great things. been so looking forward to this, and I'm, I'm, I'm uh, humbled and thrilled to be part of the Faith Talk series. You've had some amazing people come and speak as part of this series in the past. And my topic um, is maybe a little, little strange for, um, for something called Faith Talks that we would talk about, doubt. Uh, it might seem at first blush that doubt is the opposite of faith, but I, I want to suggest something different. And when, when I was uh, praying and thinking about what we should explore together, I kept thinking about some people I know. I, I know this one guy, Scott. He's a, a wedding photographer, refers to himself as a used-to-be Christian. And uh, he, he told us that what happened was that he, uh, he started to have this kind of nagging question about something to do with the sovereignty of God, how God's will works and its interaction with free will. And it started to really bug him. And he went to a, a couple of the sort of local experts that he could find. One was his uh, pastor and the other was, uh, we used to have this kind of Bible answer guy on our local radio station. He went to them both with this question that he had, and they both uh, tried to answer the question for, for him, but they both implied or outright stated that it was arrogant for him to question God. And so he tried not to, but he didn't want to be dishonest with God, and eventually he just kind of stopped um, talking to God, which is sad. And then I know this girl, uh, Jenny, um, she is, loves the Lord, uh, loves to tell people about the Lord, doing great. But she did have this, this one season um, after she had a, a kid, she went through this really hard time of postpartum depression. And the very worst thing about that time, about that illness, was that whatever was going on hormonally and, and chemically, 
sort of cut off her ability to perceive God's presence. And she used to just beg him, come on, break through, break through. I need to know you're here. And eventually she got better, and she still loves the Lord, and everything's fine. But every once in a while, if, if someone's talking about a time when God really met them, when they really needed him, her, these tears kind of spring to her eyes, and she thinks, why, why couldn't that have gone that way for, for me? And then uh, I don't, there's another guy I was thinking of. His name is Richard. I don't actually know him. He's my real estate agent's dad. And uh, Richard was uh, a preacher in the Maritimes, and uh, he's not anymore. And when I asked my friend why her dad wasn't a preacher anymore, she said, well, um, a, a bridge uh, got washed out in our little town in the east, and my brother was on that bridge, and my brother died. And the next time my dad got up to preach, he just didn't know what to preach about. Uh, now, my experiences with doubt are much more run-of-the-mill. Uh, faith has come really naturally to me since I was young, when I was about four. Uh, we went to my grandparents' house in Victoria for the weekend. We went and visited uh, their church. And somebody in that church service talked about John 3.16. I'm sure you know it, that awesome news that God loved us so much that he sent his son. And if we would believe in his son, we don't have to die. We can have eternal life with him. And so after the church service, when we went back to my grandma and grandpa's house, I asked my mom about that verse, and she said, you know, if you want, you can say yes to life with Jesus right now. And I said, yes, I want to do that. And we went to kneel down by my grandma's couch. And um, now, people don't do this so much anymore, so you may have no frame of reference for this, but my grandmother believed that no upholstery should ever be exposed to the atmosphere ever. Do you know any, is it, does that still exist? So there's like these plastic quarters down the carpet and the couch, her good couch was completely covered in this like thick plastic wrap. And so I knelt down on the plastic runner and I put my elbows on the plastic couch and I prayed and asked Jesus into my heart and he came into my heart. And, um, and then I kind of peeled myself off and <laughs> I've, <laughs> I've always thought of that as an experience that really stuck with me, you know? <laughs> Anyways, my whole life I've believed, and yet um, I'm going to blush a little to tell you this, but every once in a while, I, I can be in something like an Easter Sunday service, praising God, he has risen, yes, he has risen indeed, and then out of nowhere, this little voice will say, what if, what if this is just a dream, what if this is just sort of a way of trying to make meaning in a meaningless world, and I think, where did that come from? I am a mature believer, a disciple of Jesus Christ, what is that? Now, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, and some of you really don't. There's probably a few of you here uh, that are like what I think of as my faith warrior friends at home who just honestly never really, uh, you always sort of can sense God's presence and you never um, really struggle. And if you are that person, I suspect you are uh, what I think of as a 1 Corinthians 12 kind of believer. You know, Paul says, and now to each, oh, where have I got it here? Paul says that the Lord has given to each of us different gifts, and fascinatingly, he includes faith in his list of gifts. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing, and so on. Now, I don't think that Paul is saying only some people get enough faith to be in relationship with God. I think that is open to all of us. But I think Paul might be getting at that there's some people, and some probably in this room, who have been given a special gift of that never-doubt faith for the good of the community. 
And so if you're here and you're thinking of maybe going to the other couple of talks and you're like, well, that's not really my thing, I think this still might be a useful exploration for you because the faith that you've been given is faith for the good of the community, for those of us who do wrestle with doubt. Sometimes we might need you to believe for us for a little while when we can't. So these talks are for you. But if you have a little something a little bit more like my temperament and you sometimes do find yourself in seasons where it's difficult to perceive God's presence or you're wrestling with questions or you're frustrated and your knowledge seems incomplete and you just don't like the mystery so much, then these talks are for you too. Here's the thing. In those, uh, especially those first three case studies I told you about that have some sort of tragic aspects to them, I don't think the problem with those stories is so much doubt itself, but the different ways we try to respond to and deal with doubt. What I think doubt actually is, is what bubbles up when there's a, a two kinds of gaps, and sometimes, very often, they happen right at the same time. Gap number one is the gap between what we thought we were gonna encounter in God or in the world, and what we're actually encountering. This is, there's this gap, and so, this what is going on, doubt bubbles up. And the second gap is between what we're able to understand with our, you all look like exceedingly bright, smart people, uh, but you are nonetheless, I'm pretty sure, finite. And so uh, if you are the exception, let me know. But um, the second gap is between what we can comprehend with our finite brains and what is actually there. Um, to be understood. So there's uh, the gap between what we were expecting and what's there and the gap between what we can understand and what's there. And doubt bubbles up in that gap. And the, those gaps, when you think about it, are actually really prom full of promise and possibility. But if our instinct is like, oh my goodness, I have to close this gap by whatever means possible and as quickly as possible, I gotta shut this down. I'm a Christian, I should not be doubting. I should not be feeling this discomfort and this incompleteness. If that's our response, that's when doubt does damage. Uh, to our faith. So I want to propose to you that there's five um, general unhealthy ways that we tend to respond to doubt when it bubbles up, if we're uncomfortable with it. Our first option is to make God smaller. We start encountering the mystery of a transcendent, awesome, beyond our comprehension God, and we think, well, this does not work for me, so I need to make God smaller. I um, I, I, I like reading about the, the Pythagoreans of ancient Greece who discovered irrational numbers. Now, I, I, don't, I don't know if you have a math program here. I don't know what your comfort level is with, with math. I actually get frightened in the face of rational numbers. Um, but the Pythagoreans, when they discovered irrational numbers, you know, irrational numbers are numbers that you can just keep calculating forever. You, you pass the decimal point, they just go and 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 go. And when the Pythagoreans discovered these numbers, it was so freaky to them, so troubling to them to get this glimpse of something eternal, that they tried to suppress it and keep it a secret, and they actually threatened the death penalty for anyone who told anyone about these numbers that they had found. Now, in the 2,600 or so years since, we've kind of calmed down about irrational numbers, unless you have a math exam. Um, but, uh, but I still think that every time we stumble across a fresh glimpse of something 
truly eternal, it scares us. We don't know what to do with it. And so our option, one option, is to just make God smaller. I'm just going to contain him in these four creedal statements that all start with the same letter, and it's going to be good, and I'm just going to squelch the mystery and the bigness of God. But of course, that's tragic, because we're not getting to know God for who he really is. We're not. We're, we're truncating and reducing all that life with him can be and all that he is. The second option is to make ourselves bigger. I call this the I got this mode, right? I've got it figured out. It's cool. I'm super secure. I have no questions. Um, and where this leaves us, um, it leaves us with no, what you know, to use a fancy term, no epistemological humility, right? We think we've got it all figured out. We're not teachable. We're not learnable. We're not open to new information. It's not a good way to live. The third option is just to go on autopilot. Like, this is just too hard. I have too many questions. This is too uncomfortable. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to keep my faith, like so much fire insurance, because I, you know, I want to make sure everything's good when I die. But I'm not, I'm going to stop really engaging. I'm going to stop wrestling because it's just too hard. So I'm going to go on autopilot. The fourth option is uh, to in- insulate. Sometimes we call this fideism or fideism. We say, I'm just going to believe no matter what, and I don't want to engage with any other kind of knowledge in this world. I just I don't want to have a conversation with my culture or with what s- people are thinking about. I'm just going to stay in my little happy place. And um, that's obviously not the best way to live either. And the third or the fifth option is, is the most tragic one. Sometimes, like some of the people in my story, they just walk away. The cognitive dissonance, the questions become too much, and they give up. We, we don't want that. <laughs> These are not helpful ways um, to approach a doubt. And my question is, is there a better way? What would happen if we started to see those gaps between what we were expecting and what we're encountering and between what we can understand and what seems to actually be there or hints of what seems to actually be there? What if we saw those gaps as opportunities to grow and deepen and strengthen and enlarge our faith? One of my favorite writers, Frederick Buechner, says that doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it alive and moving. And I think that he might be right if we can have more healthful uh, approaches to doubts when they bubble up. So as George warned you, I'm going to try to suggest that at least three of these more healthy, life-giving, faith-nurturing approaches to doubt, things that can take doubt from being a fire that consumes faith to um, allowing doubt to be a fire that refines and fuels faith. And the first one is to go ahead and expect it. Expect some turbulence. Um, do we have any nervous flyers here? Anybody who would rather not get on an airplane? <laughs> yeah. So you know, if a, if a pilot sees that there's some rough air ahead, he'll come over the loudspeaker and he'll say, looks like there's some rough air ahead. Please sit down, put on your seatbelts. And he's doing that for two reasons, right? The first reason is so that uh, you put your seatbelt on so that logistically you can get prepared. If there's any loose items that might bonk you on the head, you can put them away. Logistically, you can get prepared. And the second reason is so that when you do hit the rough air, you won't panic. You won't think that this is way out of the normal and you're going down in flames. You'll know that it's a normal, expected part of air travel. And what I want to say to you is if we can, those of us who are prone to some questioning and some doubts, if we can go ahead and expect it and know that it's a normal part of the faith journey, it can make a huge difference in the effect that death has on our faith. And the reason I'm so passionate about this is because when I had my first serious encounter with doubt in my early 20s, I was completely blindsided. 
I had no idea um, that doubt could be a part of a vibrant faith journey. I thought for sure it meant that I was losing my religion. I'll tell you a little bit about that. I, I was in, in my early 20s, married uh, on this adventure. My music career was starting to unfold, and my husband Mark and I decided to go to uh, Nashville, Tennessee for the summer to take some uh, music business meetings. It was great. We were on a great adventure. We stayed with our friends, uh, Chris and Sally Jones in Franklin, Tennessee, which is a super charming uh, kind of Civil War era town outside of, of Nashville. And everything was going great. It was, it was awesome, except that I started to get this sense of unease. And I started to have these questions bubbling up, uh, something to do with um, theodicy, with the problem of pain in the world that so many people wrestle with. I understood that there was free will and that this is a broken planet, but I couldn't understand why God seemed to intervene in some cases and not other cases. And then I would grab my Bible for some comfort at night in Chris and Sally's place, and I always seemed to turn to some Old Testament passage where God seemed to be being really vengeful, and I, that was, it wasn't helping. And I had this growing sense of unease. A part of it, I think, was our, our friends, Chris and Sally, they never met a stray they didn't take in. I guess that's how we got to be there, too. And they had a bunch of dogs, which I'm totally cool with. I love dogs, but they also had a bunch of cats. I'm not so much of a cat person. I always have this feeling that cats are, are plotting my death. And... Um, <laughs> So Sally's cats, it, at night, we would, Mark and I would lie in our little guest room, and these cats would come in and do that creepy cat thing where they need your chest, and they wouldn't do it to Mark. Mark wasn't scared of the cats, right? They smelled my fear, and they would come in, about three or four of them, and knead my chest, and then just lay on it and kind of sinisterly purr all night. <laughs> it was not helping my situation. And so the cats and the heat, and even though on the surface it was a great summer, uh, I, I continue to have this growing and growing um, sense of unease. And I just want to read you a little bit uh, from my book about what happened next. To this day, I remain almost completely baffled by what happened next. The vague and cloudy sense of foreboding began to take a more definite shape until in the middle of one particularly sweltering night, the walls of our little guest room closed in like a coffin and I lay trapped in a sweaty panic. Everything sane and solid and good in my life, everything I had believed effortlessly, seemed all at once to disintegrate into absolutely nothing. Physically, I felt sick to my stomach, heart racing, fists clenched. The life-giving oxygen of faith and hope that had always sustained me was suddenly and inexplicably cut off. I could not feel the presence of God. Now, I had been one of those people who had said many times up until that moment that I could not imagine how a human being could rise every day with the sun, could hear the Bach, could hear Bach or the Beatles, could hold a squirming newborn or taste double fudge ice cream, or participate in any of the infinite number of small and persistent miracles of this life and not believe in God. The idea that any living soul could be blind and deaf and numb to his obvious insistent presence had always been unfathomable to me. Now, I, I knew what it it was the doubt on one level. I had wrestled with the apparent contradictions I had encountered in scripture, in my church, in my own nature. And I had played the requisite mind games from time to time. What if my faith in God is an inherited delusion? What if he's nothing like we think? What if he doesn't exist at all? But the thing was, however brave I thought I was being, however adrenaline producing it was to stare down the barrel of my own mental pistol, it had always been a game of Russian roulette in which the gun wasn't really loaded. That doubt had been intellectual, doubt of the mind, 
rather than visceral, you know, dealt felt in the gut, the cellular tissue, and the soul. However dark it might occasionally seem without and within, there'd always been a place deep inside where a little light flickered away resolutely. I believed I always had, and I thought I always would, until that stifling night in Franklin, Tennessee, when the air grew too thin to sustain the flame, and in a perfectly still, awful instant, the light went out. Hindsight has not completely illuminated that dark summer for me, but at least now I can see that part of the terror I felt was rooted in my unconscious belief that it was heretical not to be certain about every aspect of God. I don't know if I would have articulated it that way. I probably would have paid lip service to the idea that God is bigger than our comprehension. But at my core, I was not prepared for all the paradox that was beginning to mark my encounters with him. Pinned beneath the cats in the Jones guest room, peering tensely into the dark, I suddenly found myself staring into the gaping chasm of the infinite number of things I could not understand. I was left questioning everything, especially my right to question anything. See, I couldn't make a mental distinction between my images of God and my beliefs about God and God himself. So when I began to question my belief system, it felt like I was challenging God. And that was the one thing that my belief system could not allow. I'd had enough truly life-changing encounters with God that it devastated me to think I might be turning my back on him or letting him down. And so hanging over even the lightest and brightest moments of that summer was a dark, brooding storm cloud. The sense not only of betrayal, but of being a traitor. So doubt is always painful, I have since learned. But I think it would have been much less traumatic to me at that time if I had known that any other believer went through it. I don't know what the culture's like here or in cultures you grew up with, but in, in, in my church, somehow I had, I had just absorbed this idea that if you really believed and you were a faithful Christian, you would never struggle with serious doubt. And if I had known to expect some turbulence, I think it would have helped me respond to that doubt in a much more healthy way. And, and I want to unpack five ways um, it really would have helped me. First, it would have helped me, as I've already said, if I knew that doubt was a well-documented a reality in the lives of many faithful Christians, including many of our shining examples in the Bible. You know, you go to Hebrews 11 and you go through the Hall of Fame uh, list of believers, characters like Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Gideon, Samson, David. These people had questions. They spent their time hollering at God, wrestling with doubt. The point seems to not be that they never doubted, but that they came to God with those doubts. I wish back then in Franklin, Tennessee, beneath the cats, I'd heard about St. John of the Cross, this 16th century guy that wrote in painful detail about the, what he called the dark night of the soul, that it could be a part of growing up our faith to go through this long period of, of darkness and distance. It really would have helped me to know that maybe I was having a little taste of that. The second thing I wish I'd figured out, and probably most of you know this already, but I, I really don't think I did way down deep. I really don't think I realized that a trouble-free life is just simply not promised in the Bible. In fact, quite the opposite. Now, most of us know that. We know that there's lots of passages and stories of the Bible of faithful believers going through struggles. In fact, it seems to be one of the hallmarks of the believer's experience in the Bible. But I still somehow thought if I believed hard enough, nothing would go too wrong. 
And if you absorb that idea somehow, then when tragedy does strike or you go through a really dark season, it's got two layers to it now, right? You have to contend with whatever you're contending with, plus this extra layer of guilt and fear and shame of either, either I'm not doing faith right or God has let me down. Uh, we complicate it uh, way beyond what we need to. If, if we actually went back and read the stories, we'd read Paul saying, therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. What were some of Paul's light and momentary troubles? Do you have a hangnail? <laughs> Shipwrecks, right? Floggings? his eventual martyrdom. The Bible's actually pretty honest about what we can expect. 1 Peter 3.12, I love this one. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I thought it was so strange when a fiery ordeal came upon me. And then this one from Jesus and, and John. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, full stop. But take heart. I have overcome the world. If I had been a little bit more connected to the reality of the Bible, what I could expect, uh, I think it would have helped me to respond uh, with doubt in more life-giving ways. The third thing that would have really helped me is if I had understood that doubt can often be necessary for growth, to grow up our faith, especially those of us who uh, accepted faith young. We, we draw a certain map of the world and our, counter, our understanding of God and what we can expect from God when we're young. As we get older, we've got to redraw that map as our faith matures. But for some of us, that feels like we're tearing up our faith to, to redraw the new map. We're not. We're just revising, responding to the truth that God reveals to us. I have a friend, Lance. He's a pastor in Vancouver, and he has three boys, seven, five, and three. And the five-year-old boy, it sort of classic middle child um, style is a total contrarian rebel. And if you want to be a contrarian rebel in a pastor's house, you announce when you're five years old, I no longer believe in God. <laughs> right? So he was doing this for about two weeks. He had this phase where he was announcing this. Well, his older brother, the seven-year-old, who's a, a firstborn like me, was out of his mind, horrified that his brother would say this, and at one point said, you are a criminal, right? This is not right. He was so horrified. But about a month after all that happened, our defender of the faith, the seven-year-old, called his dad into his room late one night and said, Dad, how do I know that God is real and not made up like the stories of ancient kings? And he had, to, he had to go through both of those stages in starting to make his faith his own, the defending of the faith and the questioning of the faith. And he probably will many, many more times in his lifetime as his faith grows and stretches. C.S. Lewis helps us so much here when he says, my idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. In fact, he shatters it himself as he calls us on and on to a deeper knowledge of who he is. Letting go of the old ideas can hurt. The fourth thing I wish I had understood is that faith is not the same thing as certainty. By definition, actually. If God would finally, once and for all, give us the kind of proof that would make us 100% certain, i.e. leave absolutely no room for doubt, then faith would no longer be required. It would just be certainty. We know that God wants a free relationship with us, right? He's, he wants us to love him 
and to experience his love in order for us to have the freedom to love him, we also have to have the freedom not to love him. And much the same, I think, can be said about faith. In order for us to grow in faith in a commitment in relationship with God, there has to be an opportunity for not faith. Faith is not the same thing as certainty. So we need to stop pursuing certainty and live into faith. Um, and when we give up certainty, it hurts, but we're not giving up commitment. That's a whole different thing. And the fifth thing that it would really help me to know is that it really helps to plan ahead. If I had known turbulence was coming, I could have put my seatbelt on, right? And I think the best way that we can plan ahead is if right now you're in a season where God is so real to you, you've sensed his presence, everything is clear to you about the gospel, write it down, get it down, document it somehow, so that if a season of turbulence comes, you can come back to it. I think that's why um, the biblical writers are obsessed with remembering, right? Deuteronomy 11, take these words and write them on your wrists and tattoo them on your foreheads and put them on your fence posts. You know, get it down, get it down. Uh, one of my favorite songwriters, Pierce Pettis, has this song where he describes these amazing moments in a guy's life. And at the end of every verse, he says... Um, hold on, boy, you're going to need that memory. When things come along, when you have encounters with God, uh, with each other, and you know that God is real, get it down somehow. So how, how do you get it down? In the Old Testament, they had this thing called Ebenezer's. You familiar with that concept? We see it in 1 Samuel 7 when um, the Philistines, or the Israelites under Samuel, they come back to God, they're repentant, God... Um, comes back to them, they're reconciled, and then they have this huge military victory in the field. And the first thing Samuel does is he thinks, we're going to need to remember this the next time we forget who we are in God, the next time we encounter some turbulence. So he builds this little rock museum that he calls an Ebenezer, and I can totally see those people's grandkids having to go to the Ebenezer Museum and be reminded again of God's faithfulness. Find a way in your life to build some Ebenezers. Some of you are photographers, take some pictures. Some of your songwriters write some songs. Some of your journal keepers keep a, a, a journal. I uh, was talking about this idea somewhere and this woman said, oh my goodness, my husband is an accountant and he refuses to throw out any receipts like from the last 20 years. And I was like, you know, after seven years, you can throw out the receipts. And she finally, they finally came to all, you know, near blows over this. And he said, no, 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 look. And he went to a box from 12 years earlier, and he said, this is um, the first crib that we bought. And this is that dinner when you told me you were expecting. And this is that trip to Mexico. Remember that trip to Mexico? And she realized that those receipts were his Ebenezer's. So if that's your thing, keep your receipts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> My point is, find, find a way uh, to document it. We're almost out of time, but I want, I want to tell you quickly that at the end of that summer, on, on my way home, uh, after this whole summer of um, yelling into the void, on my way home, my husband and I, we hit the canyons of Utah, this place called Angel's Landing. We just, not on purpose, we just happened to be going through there, right at sunset. And I had what I think of as my poor man, poor man, poor man's Job moment, where God said to me, "Look, when you can tell me how I did this, you'll be able to get everything uh, about me." Um, and and life started to come back into my faith. And at that time, uh, I wrote an Ebenezer so that I could remember. And maybe I can. Do I have enough time that I could sing that if we go a few minutes late?
So here's my Ebenezer from that summer. So I know 
So part of being prepared is make sure you have uh, some Ebenezer's. And the last uh, part of being prepared that I want to mention is to rely on collective memory, rely on each other, rely on scripture, this book of Ebenezer's of ways that God has been faithful, ways that we know he's real. Rely on each other exactly like you do here. Come together in community. Believe for each other uh, when one is struggling. And uh, I thought maybe the way that we could finish this is, is by together affirming the Apostles' Creed, one way that the church has been reminding themselves, preparing themselves for turbulence, remembering who God is um, together. So can you stand? And we will do that. All right. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.